Hey everyone, welcome to The Drive Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Atia. This podcast, my website, and my weekly newsletter all focus on the goal of translating the science of longevity into something accessible for everyone. Our goal is to provide the best content in health and wellness, full stop, and we've assembled a great team of analysts to make this happen. If you enjoy this podcast, we've created a membership program that brings you far more in-depth content if you want to take your knowledge of this space to the next level. At the end of this episode, I'll explain what those benefits are, or if you want to learn more now, head over to peteratiamd.com forward slash subscribe. Now, without further delay, here's today's episode. My guest this week is Chris Sonnenday. Chris is the Transplant Director for Michigan Medicine. He received his medical degree at Vanderbilt and went on to complete his residency in general surgery at Johns Hopkins, which is where we met. He went on to complete multiple fellowships. He trained in trauma surgery, hepatobiliary oncology, and of course, transplant surgery. More than any of Chris's academic accolades, the thing that makes him most special to me is just the kind of human being he is. And some of you may have heard me talk about Chris in the past. I've spoken about him on multiple podcasts, both this podcast and other podcasts where I've been interviewed. And I've always really referred to him as probably the most special resident I ever had the privilege of working alongside. And he's frankly unlike anyone I've ever met. And I've long wanted to talk with him. And this podcast really served as an opportunity to do two things. One was sort of showcase the type of leadership that Chris has developed and carried with him from Baltimore to Michigan, and also to really tell the story of transplant medicine, which is something that I think most people don't fully appreciate and understand, and yet it touches so many lives. We, in this episode, go into great detail about it. Frankly, we talk about the entire history of two organs in particular, kidney, which is illustrative of so much, and liver, which is really Chris's specialty. And we talk about them from the lens of the surgical developments and, of course, the immunologic developments, which are probably the cornerstone developments. We talk about some of the tragedies, of course, and the miracles that have been witnessed by this field. So I think this is an episode you won't want to miss, even if you think at the outset that transplant surgery is something that's a bit too far removed from your day-to-day life. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Chris Sonnenberg. Chris, we've been talking about doing this for probably two years now. So I'm really happy to finally sit down with you, though we had always thought we'd be doing it in person, but decided just didn't want to wait any longer. <laughs> no, I, I miss you dearly. And uh, I think during our discussion today, people are going to get to understand why you've played such an important role in my development. I'll just state for everyone that you were one of my senior residents, what we call chief residents, when I was going through my training at Hopkins. And I think on other podcasts, people have probably heard me mention you. I've certainly talked about you. I talked about you on Jocko's podcast several years ago. I've talked about you on this podcast. And usually in the context of what I consider to be the most remarkable leadership. Residency was not not without its stresses and stressors. And I think we have lots of great memories from it, but but also some not so great ones. And and <laughs> therefore anything that anything that could have been done by those around us to make the process better was always appreciated. And I think we'll get to that later, but let's just start by telling folks like how you even got interested in in medicine, let alone surgery. Well, first of all, thank you so much for the invitation. It's awesome, even virtually, to get to hang out with you and reminisce a little bit, but also talk about our work. And I'm really proud of the work you've done with this podcast. It's been so impactful to patients, providers. It's just a cool way to see your your leadership and impact extend. Yeah, medicine for me was something I stumbled to. So I grew up in the D.C. area. 
My dad is a retired Presbyterian minister. My mom was a medical social worker. The only other physician in my family is my grandfather, who was a, an internist and researcher in St. Louis. And, you know, I went to college without a clear plan other than wanting to, to play college soccer, which is what I was fortunate enough to do. And I had imparted to me by my parents that, you know, they would support whatever I chose to do, but wanted it to be something that served other people. And I, you know, through the course of my studies did come to medicine for some of the somewhat cliche reasons. You know, it was a really exciting, challenging field that appealed to kind of the problem solver or the scientist in me, but first and foremost was a way to serve people and came to surgery very late too. In medical school, I was one of those people that kind of liked everything and uh, was fascinated by kind of all fields, but really became attracted to what fortunately I think still sustains me today. And that is that being a surgeon provides this really unique opportunity to enter people's lives in their scariest, kind of darkest moments and to have the privilege to be able to walk that with them and try to help them navigate that time and, and to have skill in some cases to solve the problem. And I think that was remarkable to me. I was struck by the the challenge of it and, you know, was fortunate to make the decision to train in surgery and end up at Hopkins, where as I totally agree with how you described it, it was like at the one hand kind of forged us into the people we are today, but, you know, also was difficult and challenging. And that's partially also what made it, you know, the experience it was. Yeah. How did you pick Hopkins? I mean, I guess you could say Hopkins sort of picks people and not the other way around, but how did you at least have the desire to go to, to such a rigorous program? Was it something that said, Hey, once I've committed to doing this, I might as well go to the best place. Yeah, it was, a, it was a combination of things. You know, as I mentioned, I decided a little late in medical school that I wanted to train in general surgery. And I, and I went and consulted with the program director at my medical school, who was John Tarpley, kind of a legendary general surgeon at Vanderbilt, who had spent a lot of his career in Africa actually doing mission work and surgery. And I went to meet with him. And to be honest with you, the goal of that meeting was to have him tell me that I even had a shot at staying at Vanderbilt. You know, that was that was my kind of what I thought would be the the best I could do. And we talked for a long time. He's a wonderful person, wanted to hear about my goals. And and he said, I think partially in jest, but he said, you know what, I think we need to send you back to the mothership because he had trained at Hopkins and he still carried with very passionate memories about the training there and the standard of clinical excellence that, that the training programs there represented. And so, you know, I was fortunate enough to get an interview and, and was obviously impressed with the history and the the emphasis on clinical excellence. But like you, I think I was also really attracted to the idea of mentorship. And one individual in particular, Keith Lillimo, who was the program director at the time, now the chair of surgery at Massachusetts General Hospital, I really got the feeling that he was invested in the development and training of his residents not only as surgeons, but also as individuals and as leaders. And exactly like you said, kind of once I got that sense, I, I wanted to swim in that in that pool, so to speak, figuring that I would gain as much from obviously the terrific history and mentors and training environment, but also 
the individuals who we were lucky to train next to. You know, I mean, I think when you feel like you're just running with superstars every day, that does push you to be the best possible physician, surgeon, person you can be. And, you know, I can think of so many individuals just like you that, you know, inspired me to push myself to beyond kind of expectations that I probably even had for myself at that period of time. There's no doubt during this discussion, Chris, I'm going to have to embarrass the hell out of you because, you know, the reality of it is you were definitely, and you're just going to be too modest to accept it, but you were certainly in a league of your own, even amongst that caliber of individuals. So it's one thing to say you played for the Yankees. It's another thing to say you were Mickey Mantle or Joe DiMaggio. And I think one of the things I want to dig into today is for many of us, certainly myself, I'd put in that category you show up with all of these ideas about what you can be and what this process is is like. And somewhere along the way, a tiny piece of you gets a little broken. You lose a little bit of your humanity. Your tolerance for distress goes down. The empathy goes down a little bit. Your tolerance for others around you, even on the same team, goes down a little bit, whether it's your tolerance for an error that a nurse makes, your tolerance for an error that the lab makes. I mean, I just watched in myself over five years a degradation of humanity that in my case led to a very extreme outcome, which was departing. I can safely say you're the only person in whom I didn't witness that. And simultaneously, you were the best of the best. So it, to me, that's just an unusual combination that I, I definitely want to understand that a bit more. Well, I mean, that's very kind of you. I didn't feel that way at the time, which is, I guess, true of all of us. The battle you're waging within is, you know, different than what everybody sees on the outside. You know, I mean, I think... One way of asking that question is kind of what sustained me during that time period, what, you know, kept all of us going, but but me in particular. I definitely had a overwhelming sense from day one of arriving in Baltimore, and this speaks to kind of my medical training in general, but certainly specifically our residency, that I felt like I was very lucky to be there, you know, that there were hundreds of qualified individuals who could have taken that spot and probably thousands of other individuals who who didn't get the opportunities I did to get to that spot. So I felt obligated, if that's the right word, to kind of maximize that entire experience. I also felt the burden, if you will, of the expectations of those around me. You know, I mean, the expectations of those that were training us, our colleagues, et cetera. You know, I always, one of the things I said to Dr. Lillalone, Dr. Cameron, when I left was, you know, thank you for your high expectations. Like that's really what drove me to achieve things that I didn't necessarily think were within me. I will say though that the last thing, and this this is true to this day, so it's not specific to residency, is that I have always found, fortunately, that what recenters me when medicine gets hard, because it does get difficult, whether you practice in a, you know, busy primary care practice where you're cramming through 40 patients a day, or you're doing operations where a wrong move leads, can lead to somebody's death. You know, there are, there are good days and bad days, and there are pressures that can do all the things to you that you alluded to. But what has always recentered me is the patients. I mean, to be honest, 
that privilege that I was speaking of earlier of being invited into people's lives in these crazy moments and actually having the opportunity to intervene. And somehow, even in the thick of residency, when you're like, why is it that this lab I ordered 14 hours ago has still hasn't been done? Or why can't I find the x-rays that were just on this desk like <laughs> two hours ago? Or all the other crazy things that we had to deal with? Or why why is there no food to eat at 11 o'clock at a 24-7 operation? The thing that always kind of recentered me is reminding me that the people upstairs in those beds had it a lot worse off than I did. And, you know, I think that the privilege of being involved in their care is kind of what recentered me and still does today. You know, when I have days like that, I, that is always what is able to kind of pull me back to the right frame of mind. Another thing that I think made you very special that wasn't, that I think was actually distinct from everything you're describing, everything you're describing was on incredible visible display, but you could have, I think, had all of those characteristics and you wouldn't have created the magnet that someone like me felt. Now, I can't speak for the other residents. It would be hard for me to imagine I'm the only one that felt this way. But I just remember any time my rotation card showed I was going to be your junior resident, it didn't matter what the rotation was. I couldn't wait for that month to arrive. So that speaks to something a little different. And let's go back to, you went to Northwestern, if I recall, right, for college. And, yep. and so you were a division one athlete, you're playing soccer. Were you the team leader? I was a captain. I was not the best player on the team, at least on my college teams, for sure. But I do feel very lucky that I was elected to represent the team and to serve in a leadership role, at least as it as it is within the context of an athletic team. One of the things that has always been true for me, you know, and this dates back to sports as a kid, and to be honest, is part of the reason why I chose to be a transplant surgeon, is that I always migrated to team collaborative activities. I was never an individual sport athlete. You know, I, I swam a bit, I played tennis a bit, but I never kind of like was captivated by those sports in the same way that I was of just being on a team. And in fact, there were multiple times in my development as a young kid playing soccer in the DC area, which is a very competitive kind of soccer environment, you know, where I was lucky to kind of be on the some of the teams that I was on playing with elite players. But being on that team, being in that environment seemed to pull the best out of me. And I think that was true in residency too. You know, what, what I relished the most was like, yeah, it was five in the morning, but you showed up and there was Peter and there was Megan and there, you know, it was your team. And it was like, you felt like you were <laughs> unstoppable to some degree, even though you were doing what at times seemed a possible task. And I feel the same way about transplant. You know, I feel like part of the reason I chose it, it was clear that no one can accomplish what it takes to take a liver transplant patient from their diagnosis to listing to operation to recovery to transforming them to a new life afterwards without a really highly functioning team. And that is what always has inspired me to give my best because I feel like I'm on a team where other people are doing the same thing. I mean, there's a story I'll tell that I would imagine you don't recall because it was so commonplace, but it really stood out to me as an example of what a great leader would do. So you'll have to forgive me for 
explaining a process that you understand oh too well, but most people don't. Actually, I'm going to have you explain it. Tell folks what the M&M conference was every Tuesday morning. Yeah. So, so you're referring to what, what at Hopkins was called Morbidity and Mortality Conference, which is, you know, I think there are versions of that throughout medicine, but in, in surgery, it is a unique part of the culture. So one of the things that makes surgeons and surgery unique as a discipline is the sense of ownership, accountability, responsibility for the outcomes of the patients that you're privileged to care for. And so Morbidity and Mortality Conference was a weekly conference where we reviewed essentially patients' stories, patients' cases, particularly patients that had suboptimal outcomes, whether it was a complication as hopefully routine as a wound complication or something that they would would extend their recovery, but they would recover from fully to a death related to a surgical procedure or at least to a diagnosis that we tried to address with the surgical procedure. My former chair here at Michigan, Mike Mahan, used to say that you could look into a department's soul by attending their morbidity and mortality conference. It becomes the kind of cultural event of the department because you get a sense for what that level is of accountability is. is. Is the conference spent kind of blaming the anesthesiologist or the nurse or the patient's comorbid conditions? Or is the is the discussion about what we could do better next time to make the patient's outcome better? And I think there are lots of examples that I'm sure you and I could regale for for hours of kind of how lessons learned in that room in the morning, you know, shape the way we think about medicine, the way we think about responsibility, all kinds of other things. One thing I always admired is that the chair who was there for most of the time, we were there, John Cameron, he would often be the moderator of Morbidity and Mortality Conference. And he always led, as you recall, with his own cases, which is, you know, a remarkable example of the level of accountability that I think he was trying to to encourage among the faculty and residents there. Yeah, that's one of the things that stood out to me because I went to medical school at Stanford and it was just a different culture. It wasn't nearly as rigorous. And so even in medical school, you would still attend that during your surgical rotations, but it it was not the conference that I saw at Hopkins, which was, I mean, this was the most intense hour of the week and it was taking place outside of the operating room. So this was kind of the story that I'll tell that uh, it just remains to this day etched in my mind. So by this point, you're now the trauma fellow. So you have now finished residency. You are now staying at Hopkins for another year to do what can only be described as the craziest fellowship ever. It's a hepatobiliary oncology fellowship combined with trauma every third night, <laughs> right. as if that weren't enough. And it's either July or August. So it's very early in the academic year. I'm the third year resident, so I'm kind of your most senior resident on that service. And you're the ACS, so you're functioning like the attending. And we had just come on that morning to receive sign-off from the team that was leaving. And 
we both recall just how chaotic that could be, right? You know, you've got people that are just getting shot two hours earlier. You got to run to the OR with them and you're being told about these all, this patient, this patient, this patient. And I mean, almost as a matter of fact, one of those patients was being discharged that day. And it was sort of like this person on this floor is going to go home in a couple of hours. Nobody needs to go and even see that person. You not only went and saw that person, but realized something was wrong. And it, and it pains me that I don't remember what was wrong. But either you sensed that this person had a compartment syndrome that got missed. I think they'd been hit by a car that, that day before or something like that. You sensed a, something that was missed. For you to be the one to go and catch it was out of this world, right? Never would the attending go and be the one to go and check on the patient whose discharge paperwork is already signed to go home. But you did that. You caught the misdiagnosis, took the patient to the operating room, operated, you know, probably saved his leg. You then presented that case at M&M several weeks later. But the part that blew my mind was you never mentioned the circumstances around which this patient came into our care. In other words, there was no blaming. There was no, well, you know, Mr. Smith was about to be discharged, but I decided to go and make sure he was okay and realized actually he had a compartment syndrome and needed surgery to save his leg. Instead, it was, you presented it as though it was your fault, as though you had missed it. And honestly, it sounds crazy. That was one of the moments when I realized I'm not good enough to be in this profession. <laughs> you know, maybe none of us are, but I don't know if you remember that case. Yeah, I do actually now that you recall it. And the circumstances were as you described, it was one of those crazy days where 35 things are happening and we were all over 34 of them. <laughs> Unfortunately, the 35th was this poor guy who was getting ready to be wheeled out of the hospital. You know, I don't remember the circumstances of the M&M discussion, but I do certainly carry the philosophy in my work currently and, you know, certainly that there is not value in kind of assigning blame to individuals. There's only value in recognizing opportunity for us as a system, as a team to get better. And, and partially it's because I think, you know, if I were to throw stones in that case, I could walk out of that conference and an hour later be the one responsible for kind of generating a similar or worse complication. So I think there's some humility that has to enter into understanding that no one has all the answers, nor should be expected to kind of catch everything. In fact, one of the things that I think has one of the, as you know, one of the criticisms of the MNM morbidity and mortality culture is that at least historically it had been a little bit too much about assigning individual blame and not about recognizing opportunity for change. But I do think that over time I've seen that change and certainly the way morbidity and mortality conferences are run now, for example, at my institution and others I've visited are much more focused on what's right for the patient than rather, you know, who do we have to kind of string up for, you know, this particular mistake, which is number one, better for patients. Number two, sets a better example for the trainees and learners in the room that are trying to do this. And just as a, is an important piece of creating the right culture where everybody's kind of oars are moving in the same direction. At what point during residency, did you decide that it was going to be transplant medicine versus the other things that you had clearly shown a fantastic predilection for, such as pancreatic surgery, liver surgery, and, and all facets of surgical oncology in the GI tract? Yeah, honestly, I was, I was greedy. I kind of wanted to do it all. I, you know, I, 
when I entered Hopkins, I had developed an interest in diseases of the hepatobiliary system and upper GI tract. So that was another thing that clearly drove my my interest in that residency where they had such expertise and concentration of experts in those diseases. I did my intern year rotation in transplant and then again a third year rotation in transplant. My fellow as an intern and then my junior attending as a third year was one of the people who's been, you know, one of the most important influences on my professional career, who's Bob Montgomery, now the head of transplantation at at NYU and a transformative figure in our field over the last couple decades. And partially it was his example of what I thought I could aspire to be as a transplant surgeon. Partially it was realizing that the distance from kind of bench to bedside in transplantation is really short. You know, it was unlike anything that I had had seen even in in a very innovative, progressive, you know, surgical department. And finally, you know, specifically speaking to my previous interest, I did see liver transplantation specifically as being completely complementary to being a comprehensive abatibiliary surgeon and physician for patients with, you know, hepatobiliary disease. You know, it's interesting. In other parts of the world, it's pretty commonplace for hepatobiliary surgeons and liver transplant surgeons to be the same individuals. You know, in the U.S., just with training tracks changing over time and such, there are there tend to be surgical oncologists who do hepatobiliary surgery and transplant surgeons who may do some hepatobiliary surgery. But I clearly thought it would make me a more complete surgeon and physician to train in both. And I've been very lucky. I mean, I, this isn't something that can happen necessarily at every institution, but I've I've straddled that line in my career too. I, about half my clinical practices is hepatobiliary surgery, surgery of the liver, bile duct, and pancreas for mostly for cancer, but other benign diseases, and then liver transplantation. So I feel like I won the lottery, you know, kind of walking that line to be able to combine those disciplines. Tell folks a little bit about what you mean by bench to bedside and that that distance being short. Uh, it's a term we throw around a lot in medicine, but its significance is huge. I want to make sure people understand it. I mean, part of it is just understanding the history, right? So transplantation as a field is very young. So the first kidney transplants were done in the 1950s. The first liver, heart, and lung transplants attempted in the 1960s none of which were particularly successful until the 1980s related to all sorts of important changes, but particularly the development of effective immunosuppression. And then once it became a feasible and successful medical intervention, then developing all of the systems around making that a reality for more people and extending that to people with organ failure of various causes. So here we are, surgical residents in the 1990s in a field that really is about 10 years old in terms of kind of being operationally expanding enough to really be a reality at most major medical centers. And so you would see things being discussed kind of in morning reporter rounds or like, no, this is a really tricky case of acute rejection. We haven't tried X yet. And then you would see we try X and it would work or not work and we just, or there were surgical techniques living donor liver transplantation, basically a major part of my practice now was created in the 1990s and early 2000s. So so I think 
the ability to see innovation become reality in very rapid form was number one, inspiring. I mean, you felt like you were doing something that was that was new and innovative and just really incredible. But also, to be honest, it made you feel like you could potentially have some impact in the development of a, of a field that was nascent. And I would put myself in maybe the second or third generation of transplanters in terms of its history, which is, you know, I feel very fortunate to be uh, kind of a witness to that history and participate in some of it moving forward. Let's use kidney as an example to explain to people the challenges. Today, we take kidney transplants almost for granted because the success rate is so high. In fact, even when I was a resident, if you demonstrated that you had enough of the skill and the interest, even the transplant fellow would let you as the you know, mid-level resident or the senior resident in general surgery do kidney transplants. You mentioned Bob Montgomery. There was a stretch on transplant where Bob and I did 13 consecutive kidney transplants together in a period of like four days. So the fact that kind of a knuckle dragger like me could have been doing this speaks to how well it works today. But as you said, this is a procedure that even in the 1960s carried with it a, a mortality of more than 50%. So Let's break down for people the evolution of this from sort of the technical evolution. It was only what, maybe a little over a hundred years ago that the anastomosis was even understood to then the complications of acute rejection, chronic rejection, and even understanding what the immune system is, is doing. So, and then we'll, we're going to get to liver after, because of course, liver takes it to a whole new level in, in all regards. Kidney transplantation is kind of the best example of all the challenges that you just alluded to. It was also the first solid organ, at least, that appealed to the earliest pioneers in the field as something that, you know, it seemed feasible to give someone an extra kidney. Like that, you could kind of imagine a way technically to make that work, as opposed to doing what we now do for, say, heart or liver transplantation, where you're doing an orthotopic transplant, you're literally taking out the prior organ and putting in the new one. That's a little different than a heterotopic kidney transplant where you're giving them an extra organ and hoping that replaces the function of their failed kidneys. People probably don't understand that, but when we do kidney transplants, we don't go into the retroperitoneum, take out the old kidneys. We're putting the new kidney basically in their pelvis, attaching it to the blood vessels in the pelvis and taking the little tube that drains urine and just putting that into the bladder, the ureter. And obviously that's much easier than if you were going to remove the old kidneys and put the new kidney in their place, given the location of the kidneys. To make kidney transplantation feasible was a collision of lots of hard work by multiple individuals, some of whom thinking about what you just said, literally, what are the technical details of taking an organ out of a either living or deceased donor, mitigating the injury that goes from cutting off its blood supply until you're able to restore it into the recipient's body. So there's a whole concept of kind of the, the technique, the preservation, and then the implantation. And then parallel to that was this whole question of, well, how do we handle the immunologic consequences of that? And so the series of events that occurred and allowed kidney transplantation to be a reality were really that the technical and preservation elements came to fruition 
before we figured out the immunologic elements. And in fact, the first kidney transplant, as you know, performed in 1954 at Brigham and Women's Hospital by Joseph Murray, who eventually won the Nobel Prize, was in identical twins, right? So he had a, two brothers, one brother who had kidney failure, another brother who was healthy, took one of the healthy brother's kidneys and transplanted it into the sick brother. And that proof of principle was what created even kind of the possibility, the vision that transplantation could work because we understood the technical and preservation challenges of actually taking an organ out of one person's body and putting it into someone else. Murray was a plastic surgeon, wasn't he? Yeah, Joseph Murray was a plastic surgeon. And interestingly, although he and his colleagues figured out this technical piece, what attracted him to transplant was the concept of tissue transfer and the immunology of that. So so a lot of the early work in immunology was done with skin grafts and kind of understanding why you could take a skin graft from your own body and put it somewhere and it would live. But if you took a skin graft from someone else's body and put it on a site, it would not, it would generally not live. And so there was this whole kind of cadre of clinician scientists who were interested in that question, including, interestingly, plastic surgeons like Joseph Murray. So he became involved in that with a group of other surgeons, including some folks who had vascular expertise and others, and kind of conceived and developed in preclinical models in animals this idea of putting a kidney in the pelvis and attaching it to the blood vessels and bladder and then pulled it off in a, in a human. And a lot of, if you look at the history of kidney transplantation through the 1950s and into the 1960s, most of the kidney transplants performed were between twins, which there's a limited supply of available <laughs> organs there. So you, you can see right there that that was going to be a capacity problem. But, you know, for example, the first kidney transplant at the University of Michigan was performed in 1963 between two twin sisters who a few years ago, we were celebrating our 5,000th transplanted organ at the University of Michigan. And those two sisters came back, you know, to celebrate that event. So, I mean, it was a remarkable achievement, but it was a little bit of a false pretense because none of the immunologic barriers were being confronted. And really what happened over the next four decades were the development of effective immunosuppression to make that a reality. And as you alluded to, it's pretty remarkable to think that, you know, in the 1960s and 70s and into the early 80s, kidney transplants were being done and there were success stories the field worked out how to understand who had preformed antibodies to particular donors so you could avoid those and pick pairs that might be more successful. There were increasingly sophisticated immunosuppression strategies that did work, you know, and drugs that were available like steroids and azathioprine were making transplantation a possibility But it's pretty remarkable to think in comparison to what we expect now that in the 1960s and 70s, if you look at some of the published series, there were mortality rates, mortality rates, meaning the patient died after kidney transplantation of 50, 60, even 70%. So it's not only that they lost their graft, but the consequences of the operation, the immunosuppression, subsequent usually infections was making these procedures highly morbid and 
unsuccessful, at least at rates that we would think of as acceptable now. And what was the life expectancy if you opted for dialysis in the 1960s? How long could you be expected to survive? It's a great question. And the first and most important kind of answer to that question is the assumption that you could get dialysis. You know, so dialysis was not available everywhere. It was largely centered around hospitals that had the ability to provide that service. Dialysis care was not routinely covered by insurers. In fact, it wasn't until kind of a quirky rider to the law that created Medicare in in the 1960s that patients with dialysis even had the option, the ability to get health insurance. It was hard to get dialysis. And then the survival on dialysis due to the challenges of infection from repeated access, the hemodynamic consequences and cardiovascular consequences we know of what were then more crude, primitive dialysis machines was such that the life expectancy was probably measured in months to years, you know, so two to four years might be a, you know, very successful outcome for someone on dialysis. Um, You know, the average life expectancy, if you take all comers for an individual on dialysis now is about 10 years or so. But again, that is partially affected by the fact that dialysis is more freely available. People, elderly individuals and people with other comorbid disease have access to dialysis they wouldn't have had. So there were no good solutions, you know, for patients with with organ failure in those times. I want to make sure people really get a sense of what these immune-based challenges were. We take it all for granted today because we can rattle off all MHC2, MHC1 complexes, and that stuff's been worked out in the most elegant manner. But in the 1960s, that was not the case. Maybe start by explaining ABO incompatibility, because I think that's something people understand. If you if you came in the hospital and you'd lost blood and we wanted to give you a blood transfusion, we couldn't just willy-nilly give you anybody's blood. We'd have to make sure that the blood type matched. That's not entirely true. If you had, you know, we could give you O negative blood no matter what. But walk people through kind of ABO, which would be this, in my mind, at least the simplest form of antibody mediated rejection. And then let's use that as a way to explain what was actually happening to all those non-twin transplants. Yeah, so that's a great model to start with. So if you think about it in really basic forms, our immune system has evolved to recognize self, recognize our own tissues, and has been primed to recognize things that do not look like us, mostly to be able to fight off viruses and you know other environmental challenges. but that unfortunately makes it difficult for something like transplantation. So in the case of a blood compatibility, we carry a blood of a, of a particular type. It has to do with the protein signature on the coating of those red blood cells. And we know that if you give someone who carries blood of a certain type, a blood type that is incompatible, so let's make it the simplest, someone who has blood type A, someone who has blood type B, and you give the individual with blood type a blood from an individual with blood type B, they will have antibodies that attack those blood cells and essentially destroy the blood cells because they think they are recognized as foreign. It's more complex than that because there's also these things called the RH antigens, which are kind of what make blood positive and negative. And you're correct that blood type O, individuals who do not have blood type O do not 
have preformed antibodies to that donor pool. So that that is kind of the universal donor pool. But it was figuring out that incompatibility understanding that was kind of the first step in understanding how you would potentially take an organ out of one individual and place it into another. Because, and this is still true to this day, that kind of step one in matching a donor and recipient is knowing their blood type because that's kind of the the first step. It gets more complicated than that for all the reasons you alluded to because it turns out those are not the only proteins on the surfaces of those cells that are recognized by our immune system. And this, in particular, this group of protein called human leukocyte antigens, which is what you were alluding to, or HLA types, is what in a very crude way determines one individual from another, that profile. And so the history of this is pretty interesting, going back to my skin graft uh, analogy. So what investigators around the turn of the century were figuring out is, again, so you could take a skin graft from elsewhere in your body and it was it would tend to work. If you took a skin graft from somewhere, somewhere else, from a, another individual, it did not work. Then even more interestingly, if you took a second skin graft from that same individual and put it on, it died faster. It's as if the body was primed to destroy that new skin graft. Kind of sounds like a vaccine, huh? Exactly. It's the same principle. So it's just kind of the second hit hypothesis that the body, the immune system, learned to recognize this foreign tissue and the immune system was even more uh, effective in eliminating it. And it was that whole series of experiments that led to these concepts right in the middle of the of the last century where the question was, and this was debated by individuals much smarter than us, many of whom now have you know, Nobel Prizes after their name. So was there something circulating in the recipient's serum that found this tissue, antibodies was the theory, attacked this tissue, set off the immune cascade, destroyed the tissue? Or was it more complicated than that? Was there kind of like we've learned about in embryology from thymic development? Was there some sort of priming event that had to take place where the the body presented this foreign tissue to the immune system and then the immune system learned how to recognize it as self or foreign and destroy it. And, And that debate went on for decades. Right. So just to separate that, in the case of blood incompatibility, it was pretty easy to figure out that it was just these soluble circulating antibodies. They weren't quote unquote smart. They were just floating around. You could do it in a test tube, you know, literally. That's right. So you have a blood type A with its little A antigen. And if the recipient has an anti-A, it grabs onto it. And these things precipitate out a solution of this reaction. And of course, now the question that you're posing is, is that how it works on organs? Or is there something more complicated where there's another actor? Correct. And the reason that that was such a fundamental question, because if you believed it was like the blood analogy and that, okay, so if we could identify the patients that had preformed antibodies, preformed proteins in their serum that were going to ruin this opportunity, then, well, that's great. Then we can select out the patients that have that reaction and use the organ to transplant others. So that's the concept of what is now called in transplant a cross match. So the idea of taking donor cells, recipient serum, mixing them 
in an assay and determining whether or not that serum lyses those cells. And that is more or less the technique that is used to cross-match individuals to match. You know, as you'll hear people talk about, oh, I want to donate a kidney to my uncle or something. I wonder if I'm a match. That's to some degree what they're talking about is whether or not that assay says that their uncle in this case doesn't have preformed antibodies that are going to destroy their cells. So that would explain kind of that initial screening step. And the other thing that that helped explain is why sometimes when you would do a transplant, either in animals or eventually in humans, there was this phenomenon which came to be known as hyperacute rejection, where you would put the organ in, you would take the clamps off, the organ would fill with blood, looks like you've won the game, and then it would immediately start to thrombose and die, essentially. That process called hyperacute rejection was figured out was because of the circulating antibodies to those HLA antigens of the donor. So that made some sense. We can try to figure that out. What didn't make sense is you would do the transplant, you would get past that hyperacute stage, the organs working, and then a day later, three days later, six months later, the organ would fail from acute rejection. So basically the same process, but with a different kind of lead time. And it was after much debate in the field, the nuances of which are more sophisticated than I can explain, but it was figured out that what was actually happening was not this circulating, what we came to call antibody-mediated or humoral rejection, but actually was happening on a cellular level, so so so-called cellular rejection. And as we learned eventually over time, that had to do with what we now learn in basic immunology, antigen-presenting cell with carrying an antigen from the foreign tissue, in this case, the donor tissue, immune mediator cells, and we discovered and learned eventually they were T cells. That recognition, priming the immune system to form injury, either uh, you know by various means, cytokines, eventual antibody formation, et cetera. And that was what was destroying organs in that kind of subacute phase. And as we figured out over the course of decades, the drugs that we had to blunt that initial immune response, high-dose steroids, I, I referred days of thioprine, they tried total body irradiation at, at some of the early you know, stages. That was Franny Moore that was doing that at, up at the Brigham as well, right? At the Brigham, exactly those weren't effective in preventing that cellular level rejection. And it was only later, you know, really the 1980s, that we developed immunosuppressive agents that were selective enough to interfere with that cellular reaction. And it was was then that transplant really became a reality because now you had the ability to sustain an organ beyond just weeks to months and you, you know, looking at more long-term survival. Really, the turning points are twofold, right? One, it's the knowledge of what's happening, because certainly by the 80s, it was not a technical challenge to be able to remove a kidney, transport a kidney, and put it in. By the way, was Wisconsin's solution already around by the 80s, or did that come later? Yeah, so, or at least the predecessors of Wisconsin's solution. And tell folks what that is and why that matters so much as well. The theory is you take an organ out of the donor body, whether deceased or living. 
you flush the blood cells and such out of it so that it doesn't clot. You then store it on ice and transport it to the recipient and and put it in. And and there were all kinds of initial thoughts about, well, do you just put it in saline essentially and transport it to the other room? And And what they found was that, and this was experimentation that happened over decades, was that there were cellular processes occurring both as kind of at the time from when ischemia begins, when the vessels are clamped and the organ is coming out, and before blood flow and oxygen is restored to the organ, there were cellular processes occurring that could be mitigated by creating preservation solutions, essentially saline, that was fortified with particular molecules. And the history of all this is beyond me, but literally they tried, it's like making Gatorade. They tried, you know, different electrolyte solutions and additives and other nutrients until they figured out which mitigated that ischemic time the best. And the, the crazy thing to think about, and this gets to, alludes to something maybe we could talk about later in terms of where is preservation going in the future. But the crazy thing is we're pretty much more or less doing that now, you know, so some of the fluid solutions and some of the minor details of what additives are in the fluid has changed. But that's essentially the way we've been preserving organs since the 1960s, 70s, you know, which is pretty remarkable that that was one, as you said, one of the early barriers figured out in the field. Once this notion of the HLA system is understood and we understand these different types of compatibilities, A drug is discovered and it's my favorite drug on the planet happens to come from basically a fungus. And this is another drug that came from a fungus, but a different one. The drug is called cyclosporin. And I think you could make the case, but I'd like to hear your take on it because you know this field so much better than I do. But if I were telling the story, I would say that was the turning point, was the advent of cyclosporin. Do you agree with that or do do you think that I'm overstating that? No, 100%. As you said, and and similar to the stories of drug development that happen in other circumstances, you know, this was a a recognized compound that had been experimented in a number of different lines of investigation. And an investigator who's really one of the central figures in the history of transplant named Sir Roy Calm in Cambridge performed a series of preclinical experiments that showed that using this medication prevented rejection in transplant models. What eventually was discovered is that it was interfering with the cascade that occurred when that foreign antigen was presented to the recipient T cell. In other words, it was a more selective immunosuppressant, so directly interfering with the cascade of events that happens downstream of the T-cell receptor. And it specifically inhibited IL-2 secretion? It affects IL-2 secretion, but you know there's actually some interesting debate about how the calcineurin inhibitors, so cyclosporin and then its eventual cousin, tacrolimus, works. They both function at the level of what are called immunophilins, these you know, soluble intracellular components. And although they affect both kind of the activation of cytokines after that T-cell recognition, including IL-2, 
They also seem to have other effects on the affinity of the binding of the T cell receptor. They have they have systemic effects that are kind of interesting. Like for example, tacrolimus, the other medication I mentioned, has a potent vasoconstrictor effect in certain organs. So, so we probably don't fully understand its impact, but certainly the central component of its mechanism was interfering with the cascade that occurs after T cell receptor binding. And you're absolutely right. Like it literally was a game changer overnight. So if you look at papers written in the 1980s about kidney transplant outcomes, there's literally an inflection point. You went from recipients having one-year graft survival rates, even with kind of the best immunosuppressive regimens that had been figured out at that point, one-year graft survival rates probably in the 70-ish, 60% range, Boom, you know, 90% overnight just with the addition of cyclosporin and then, you know, eventually refining some of the multi drug regimens. So it was a complete game changer. It not only revolutionized the impact of kidney transplantation, which from a public health standpoint is clearly the most impactful organ we transplant, you know, the number of patients with end-stage renal disease, the number of patients with chronic kidney disease. You know, from a public health standpoint, kidney transplantation is just a fundamental, important medical therapy. So not only did it make that a reality and make it a preferred alternative to dialysis, it also reinvigorated the other solid organ transplants as being a reality. So liver transplantation, which essentially had been on a more or less enforced hiatus through the 60s and 70s, heart transplantation similarly, lung transplantation as well, the confidence that now that we understood some of the technical and kind of patient-related factors that dictated the success of the operation, to now also have the promise that those organs would last more than 90 days reinvigorated those fields completely. And, you know, again, almost overnight, over the course of years, you started to see liver transplant programs, heart transplant programs, lung transplant programs pop up at major medical centers all throughout the country in the 1980s and into the early 1990s. So that was really the revolution that occurred because of that drug development. When we look at the demand for kidney transplantation today, what percentage of it is chronic versus acute kidney failure? The vast majority is chronic. So there, there are occasions where patients can get acute renal injury from traumatic events, other medical catastrophes, or they get acute kidney injury in the chronic, in this case of sepsis or something that they otherwise recover from. And we still see occasionally patients who get, for example, post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis or other diseases that are more linked to kind of an acute event. The vast majority of kidney transplants in the United States, the, the primary indication is diabetes or hypertension. So this is chronic kidney disease as a consequence of those comorbid conditions, which is one of the reasons, again, from a public health standpoint, the impact of kidney transplantation is massive. You know, So you have 100,000 people roughly waiting for a kidney transplant in the United States. You probably have fourfold that or thereabout on dialysis and then probably tenfold that number with chronic kidney disease. So the, the potential impact of having an effective and durable therapy for chronic kidney disease is remarkable. And I think it's is really important to consider as a, as a public health problem. 
I can't agree with you more, Chris. And about three years ago, I sort of had this obvious epiphany. I say obvious because I'm sort of thinking, why did it take me so long to do the math? But I realized if, if my interest clinically is trying to figure out how to help people live longer and live better, you got to start thinking about what are the things that you have to plan for. So if you're flying a glider where you know you want to cross a 200 foot chasm, but now all of a sudden you say, well, I want that chasm to be 300 feet. You have to start thinking about how much higher does that glider need to fly? And one of the things that really occurred to me was kidney function. We sort of have in the back of our minds, eh, you know, look, if a person reaches the finish line of life and their glomerular filtration rate is 40, great. You know, they don't need dialysis. They're doing just fine. And if we think that an average life expectancy should be 71 or something, and we think that, hey, we're going to tolerate a person's GFR being in the low 40s when they're in their early 70s, that's great. But if we're trying to figure out a way to help people live and live well into their 90s or beyond, that becomes a very unacceptable GFR. You're going to run into trouble. And so looking at cystatin C beyond just creatinine and other biomarkers and looking at microalbumin in the urine twice a year, I mean, we do all these things, but even though they seem kind of crazy, because it's how you sort of start to catch that early, early, oh, look, you know what? Your blood pressure of 130 over 85 is not really acceptable that's going to take you from a GFR of 95 to 85 in the next decade. And we consider that to be too precipitous a decline. So unfortunately, my view is that I think the demand for kidneys is only going to go up as we see the rampant explosion of prediabetes and metabolic syndrome. I totally agree with you. I think, and there's so many kind of wrinkles to that question to think about. I mean, the first is that is the obvious statement that as, as you preach better than anybody. We don't do preventative care, you know, <laughs> in this country very well. And and we particularly don't do it for things where we don't have reliable measures. So to your point, we use serum creatinine as kind of our best guess at kidney function. There's lots of reasons why that's a poor indicator. It's very dependent on muscle mass and other variables that prevent you from using some sort of kind of normalized number as an acceptable range. There are more sensitive markers, as you alluded to. There's now, I think, fortunately, finally being recognized the whole question of how creatinine and GFR and race interacts and how that needs to be accommodated for. So, so you're right. So number one, we don't measure it well, so therefore we don't appreciate the size of the problem. Number two is we, again, this is kind of a situation where transplant is a victim of its own success. As transplantation has gotten more successful, transplant centers around the country, transplant providers, and just the medical community in general has started to say, well, why don't we provide kidney transplants for 70-year-olds if they're otherwise healthy individuals? Because their life expectancy might be 20 years from that point. The collision of that and then the what you alluded to, this pre-diabetes, metabolic syndrome, progressive kidney dysfunction in an aging population is going to create an enormous demand for kidney transplantation. We uh, transplanted an 81-year-old a, a few weeks ago, and I remember as I was looking at the census, I don't do kidney transplant very commonly as part of my clinical practice. So I was looking at the census, I was like, wait a minute, is that 
is, is this gentleman 10 years out from a transplant back in the hospital for some other reason? Or did we actually transplant this 81 year? But the point is there are individuals who are healthy, functional people otherwise, who have a, whose life, part of what we're talking about is survival benefit, right? You compare their survival on dialysis to their survival with the transplant. Transplant is gonna win almost every time you know, as long as they you know, can tolerate the operation and the immunosuppression. So it is an, a, kind of remarkable to think of the scope of that problem and particularly to take a longevity lens on it. You know, it's, it's really kind of an interesting challenge to think about for the next 20, 30 years of transplantation. So before we get on to liver, which is such an amazing story as well, I want to I want to wrap a few things up on kidneys. So let's let's talk about the evolution from cyclosporin to prograf or tacrolimus, as you discussed, and where we are today on some of the most common immunosuppressive regimens. And then I also want to touch on this idea of not just living donors, but the live donor swaps and stuff. Because I'll tell you, one of the things that I'll never forget from my intern rotation on transplant, which like you captivated me beyond words. I mean, simple. Transplant was never even something on my radar before residency. And for the entire time I was in residency, it was always one of those things. It was like, I could see myself doing this. This is so cool. And it was actually, I think it was Bob Montgomery as well that shared this with me, which was a live donor zero out of six HLA match is always going to beat a six out of six cadaveric match. And I remember thinking, how is that possible? Now, tell folks what I just said. What, explain what I just said to people and, and more importantly, explain why it's true. Yeah, so it's pretty remarkable to consider the impact of living donation and to your earlier question, kind of figuring out the appropriate place for living donation as transplantation moves forward. So in kidney transplantation, encounter distinction to liver transplantation, but in kidney transplantation, living donation has been part of kidney transplantations from its origins, you know. So as I alluded to already, the first transplant done between identical twins, living donation remained a part of the development of kidney transplantation, and then really took off in the 1990s, we witnessed it happening with the development of the laparoscopic donor nephrectomy operation, a procedure pioneered by two individuals at Hopkins, Lou Cavusi and Lloyd Ratner. And that having a procedure that was of such tremendous benefit to the recipient that then was safe and a smoother recovery for the donor, you know, really allowed that to explode. And if you look at kidney transplantation in the United States now, let's say 18 to 20,000 patients a year undergo kidney transplant in the United States, and it's actually about half and half living donors and deceased donors. And that's probably with under-realizing the potential of living donation for all the reasons you said. So part of what you're alluding to is if you kind of compare head-to-head, let's say you have a patient on dialysis, a patient who receives a deceased donor kidney transplant, and a patient who receives a living donor kidney transplant. Let's say the starting line is the same for all three of those. And let's say that they're similar age, similar comorbid conditions, similar immunosuppressive regimen for the transplant recipients. The benefits are pretty clear. The dialysis curve is going to drop off pretty quickly. In fact, the studies that have shown that where the dialysis and transplant curves cross, even with the risks of undergoing a surgical procedure and starting immunosuppression, occurs in less than a year. It's probably in somewhere between 90 and 250 days, depending on patient characteristics. So, so that's clear. Dialysis loses. 
What's interesting then is that there's a difference between the deceased and living donor curves. And that's what you were kind of so fascinated about. And the reasons for that are many, but it probably speaks to the fact that even with all of the best technique and advances, there is really no way to mitigate the fact that a deceased donor that goes through the process and the trauma of brain death or donation after cardiac death gets removed from that individual's body, preserved, put on ice, transported to another center, and then sewn into the recipient. And that interval of time can be six to 48, 72 hours in some circumstances. As opposed to a living donor, elective operation, side-by-side or sequential operating rooms, that kidney is in a healthy environment with a healthy, normal person, normal vital signs. We dissect out the kidney, clamp the blood vessels, take it out of the body, flush it, walk it over to the recipient's room. And sometimes it's sewn in in under an hour, you know, so the time, the ischemic time from coming out of the donor's body to into the recipient. And it turns out that ischemic period is critical and is really almost linearly related to the graft survival. Part of that is probably due to the the consequences just of the ischemia reperfusion injury and literally knocking off some nephrons just from that process. Part of it also is, as we've learned, is that that ischemia reperfusion injury cascade that starts is a priming event for the immune system. So not only do deceased donor kidneys kind of pound for pound compared to living donor kidneys take that initial hit from the the ischemia reperfusion injury, they're also more prone to rejection. You see more immunologic injury. Depends on the circumstance. They often require more immunosuppression, a greater frequency of rejection. So it really is almost like two different products from a recipient's point of view. And so, you know, I think if you had your druthers, you know, as a person in need of a kidney transplant, you would want to have the access and the opportunity to get a living donor any day of the week if that is possible to you. And this other point, though, is to narrow that gap between the two, it's that with the deceased donor, you at least try to maximize the immunocompatibility. And with the living donor, you have much more flexibility. Correct. That's exactly right. So what you were describing is kind of the story you alluded to with Bob is you're comparing a living donor kidney, so optimal conditions of the transplant, but not a perfect immunologic situation, at least from looking in HLA alone, versus a deceased donor kidney that immunologically is a home run. It's about as good a situation as you can get, but still takes that ischemic hit. And we can't make up for that. So even the best immunologic situation can't mitigate that, which I think is a realization that doesn't always kind of come to fruition, but is again, one of the reasons why we feel comfortable really pushing every kidney transplant candidate to think very seriously about exploring options for living donation. It's also what's led to some of the things you alluded to, paired kidney exchanges and other things to try and expand the compatibility of donors and recipients. Let's use an an example to explain that to people because it's really quite fascinating. And we train very close to some of the people who really did a lot of the work behind um, optimizing the mathematical algorithms around that. So let's pretend that you called me tomorrow and said, Peter, you're not going to believe this, but I'm kind of at the end of my rope with my kidneys. I'm going to need to have a transplant. And 
And I, you know, I, I was sad. I thought about it and I decided, you know what, there's no greater way that I want to be able to thank Chris for all he's done for me than to give him a kidney. And I've got two and I'm perfectly healthy and I'm willing to part with one of them. So I call you up and I say, Chris, I want to give you one of my kidneys. I want to be a living donor to you. So we would go and meet with the transplant team and they would do some tests. And what if they discovered that I was a lousy match for you? We didn't even have the same blood type, never mind HLA compatibility. What would be some of the options we would explore? So the circumstance you're talking about is this really kind of frustrating scenario where a kidney transplant candidate has done the right things. They've taken care of themselves. They've gotten to a transplant center. They're listed you know, for transplant. We think they're a good candidate. They've even gone to the effort that you just described of identifying living donors. And the living donor or donors that they identify are not compatible with them, or at least safely. So as you said, they might be of a different blood type. Let's say I'm an A and you're a B. That's just not a barrier that we're used to crossing, at least with any kind of reasonable likelihood of the success rates we were discussing earlier. It may also be that I have preformed antibodies to HLA antigens that you have. And as it turns out, there's certain populations that are more prone to that challenge. So it's a really frustrating challenge because here it is, it's like you have this diamond in the rough, but you can't apply it. And so what some really smart people figured out, well, if I've got two pairs and they're incompatible with each other, but happen to be compatible with the opposite. So let's say that, you know, we're an A and a B and there's another pair over here that's a B and an A and by all other measures are compatible. Is it reasonable to swap those kidneys? And those sorts of swap kidney swaps or paired exchange began in the 1990s and, and really took off in the 2000s because it allowed people to avail themselves of broader opportunities for transplant. Now, what you're alluding to in terms of the kind of the mathematics of it is you can imagine there's some ethical quandaries there. So let's say, so you come forward to donate me a kidney. You're an extremely healthy person. You've taken good care of yourself. I assume Jill has approved this at some point in the discussion. I haven't asked her, but <laughs> you know, she can't wait to say hi to you after this podcast. So I think she would let me donate to you happily. That's an important part of the discussion. But then let's say the pair that we were talking about exchanging with is someone about our age who needs a kidney and their 75-year-old father. So I swap to them this perfectly healthy kidney from someone who's in good health and younger, and I get in exchange for that a 75-year-old kidney. Now, for some of the reasons we just talked about, it might still be in my best interest to take that living donor kidney. But you can imagine that there are differences in quality. And then to add even more complexity to it, what if, let's say, the individual that you would be donating to across the swap, you just by coincidence are a perfect match for? HLA a match across the board. But that individual that I'm swapping for, you know, we're it's mismatched. It's three out of six, maybe. It's yeah. Exactly. Or, or there's very sophisticated assays that actually can look for low levels of what we call donor-specific antibodies. That, let's say that I've got some low-level antibodies to that individual. Is it worth the, the swap? Is it worth the extra immunosuppression I would need to make that a reality, to make that pair exchange work? And so some smart people, including colleagues of ours that we both know, Dory Segev and his 
wife, Summer Gentry, who's a mathematician, started thinking about that. Like, so could we start putting some value on those exchanges and create networks of individuals? It's kind of like the dating game for kidneys where you come forward with your donor and the algorithm looks at all the other possible pairs and tries to match individuals in a way that maximizes predicted outcome. And there are now national networks that facilitate those sorts of exchanges and have really expanded kidney transplantation in ways that I don't think even we would have predicted watching it back in the 1990s. You know, for example, there was a day maybe three weeks ago where I did a laparoscopic donor nephrectomy operation, so removed a kidney from an individual. That morning, one of my colleagues was doing a similar operation in another room. Both those kidneys shipped out to other institutions. Two kidneys came back later and and our colleagues put them in later in the day into two of our recipients. So it was like we've completely dissociated the donor operation from the recipient operation, which from a patient's perspective is great. You know, and so the donors don't have to travel, the recipients have more access to organs. And you know, I think thinking about how that is applied and expanded has really been a game changer for kidney transplantation access. Chris, is there any serious discussion about opening up a market for kidney donation? So everything we just described is, it's happening through altruism. I would give you my kidney because I love you. But is there a serious discussion that says, look, what if I've just decided, you know what? I'm willing to gamble that I don't need a kidney. I don't know a given individual, but for a big enough sum of money, I'm willing to part with my kidney. Are those discussions even entertained? Great question. And this is a frequently debated and never resolved kind of debate in transplantation. So to put some framework behind that question. So when transplantation started to become a successful medical intervention, so we're talking now 70s into the 1980s development of cyclosporin, we then started to think about, so okay, this is a successful venture. We now have organ donation laws that exist around the country. We need to create networks to make sure that a liver that becomes available in Utah is, is accessible to the patient in Michigan as it to, the, to California or, or other circumstances. So there was a whole infrastructure put around that challenge. The legality of it was, and the decision that was made at the time these laws were passed, that it was illegal to sell an organ. And the reasons that that principle was upheld is kind of central to transplantation, particularly in the United States, but in most countries around the world, is that the belief was that organ donation was a gift. The ethical principle was that the donor has autonomy over that decision and makes it freely. The concern about allowing people to pay for organs, like on an open market, was that can potentially be coercive and can create markets where individuals who have lower standing in society or are economically disadvantaged then are put in this position where they can be selling their organs to achieve some game. And actually, just literally this last weekend, there was an article in the New York Times about the growth of kidney transplantation in Afghanistan, and that is exactly what happened. They have turned away from understanding relationships between donors and recipients, and that's what's happened, that wealthy people who have the resources are paying poor people for their kidneys and then not 
certainly caring for them afterwards. So as a general principle, the transplant community has decided against paying for organs as the principle being that it's coercive. Now, there's lots of people that disagree with that on general principle and say, well, why don't we just create a better system, allow some exchange of compensation to donors? And I think we are slowly migrating towards some version of that. So to give you a few examples, the legality of this has been so tight that it's been impossible even for for donors to be reimbursed for like transportation to the transplant center or time off work or other sacrifices that they had to personally make that had nothing to do with the actual donation, but just to facilitate that occurring. And there are now laws being passed in states and other and other initiatives, either through advocacy groups. There's a national group that does advocacy for living donors and and provides resources and support for travel to transplant centers and, and reimbursement for time away from work and such. But what if we created a principle where, say, for example, a living donor is compensated with some agreed upon amount of money that compensates for the time of their recovery? I think there may come a time that some version of that becomes a reality. There's also principles of should living donation provide special kind of health care benefits to individuals over time? Maybe it qualifies you for discounted public insurance or something so that you can never lose health insurance if you were to, God forbid, have a problem yourself down the road. So I think there are some versions of this that will come to fruition gradually, but I think at least in the United States, our medical legal environment and the principles behind transplantation will not permit an open market for buying and selling of organs. I like that idea, though, about providing ongoing medical coverage. You know, it's funny, whenever the debate comes up about whether we should be paying NC2A athletes, you know, especially the football players, right, they generate so much revenue for the university and then, you know, they get spanked if they accept like a $50 gift from a booster. I've always thought one solution to that is fine. If you don't want to pay athletes for playing sports at a university, you should at least cover their medical bills for the rest of their lives. Like if an athlete suffers some consequence as a result of playing sports, which many of them do, we should at least make sure that we take care of them if we're going to profit off them to the course of that. Tell folks a little bit about, if it's still the case, I assume it's still the case, there are some states in which you're better off or more likely to get a, an organ, like a liver, for example, than other states. How does that work? And what would be the best states to live in if you're vying for an organ versus the worst? Right. So fortunately, that is changing rapidly. And it's changing rapidly because it's been a focus of intentional policy change in the way organs are allocated. So it's not like when we were in residency where it was almost comical. Correct. So part of the issue is simply a supply and demand issue. So if you look, for example, at California, a state with a huge population, there is such a demand for transplant that if you restricted, if you if you kind of imagine California as just its own unit, it's almost like the organ donation supply in California would never meet the demand. That's true in other major, pop, particularly urban population centers like New York and parts of the East Coast. There are other parts of the country, and they tend to be in the Midwest, but there's some other locations in the South as well, where 
just based on population size, the amount of individuals in need of an organ transplant is modest compared to the supply of organ donors. And I think that has created this disparity where depending on where you live, you may have better access to organs in various places. The solution to that obviously is to change the system. So in other words, the way that organ donation is coordinated nationally is through these organizations called organ procurement organizations or OPOs. There's 58 of them in the country. Some of them are pretty easily understandable, like Michigan has, for example, one OPO that covers the whole state. There's like six in Texas. So it's it's, it's a little bit of a confusing network. But the point is, those are the organizations that nonprofit organizations that are responsible for identifying organ donors and facilitating the gift from procurement to transplant. And then the waiting list, you hear people say that they're, they're on the waiting list for an organ. The way that an organ is actually placed is every time an organ donor becomes available, the list is run according to a predetermined algorithm of how that particular organ is prioritized. And the problem, at least historically, is that that list has been run largely locally or regionally first and only then kind of offered out more broadly. And so what has changed in heart, lung, and liver transplantation and is about to change in kidney transplantation is those kind of relatively artificial state or regional boundaries have just gotten destroyed. And so now the way organs are allocated are literally by concentric circles. So they offer it based on distance from the donor hospital. And that has created some interesting phenomena. I mean, the good news is, to your point, is that the geographic variation that exists across the country has decreased. So it's not as important now to like go to a certain place if you know you need a liver transplant, for example. It also has created a system where if you're really sick, you know, at the top of the list for liver transplantation, for example, you're going to get transplanted quickly because you've got access to this broad swath of organ donors. The challenge is kind of the people that are medium sick, some of whom are still quite ill from their disease, who have all these sicker people kind of ahead of them on the list getting transplanted. And that speaks to the kind of need for expanding the donor pool, alternative donor sources, more living donation in the case of kidney and liver transplantation to kind of meet that need. So the system has gotten more fair, but it's only exposed the need even more, I guess is the best way to say it. That's good to hear because it definitely struck me as as a pretty unjust system 20 years ago, especially with liver. Reminded me of some great injustice. You alluded to brain death earlier. We've been remiss in not, I think, explaining to people a little bit what that means. And um, especially now as we sort of talk a little bit about liver, where a much greater number of the transplantations are from non-living donors, the donors that are non-living. So what does it mean to be brain dead? And how does that factor into, from a legal standpoint, what does it mean? And then from a physiologic and biologic standpoint, what does it mean? It's interesting. You would think that this would be like something you could flip to page one in, you know, medical textbook <laughs> and there would be, you know, but it's actually been a relatively kind of complex set of definitions to come to. And the importance of establishing brain death was in many ways driven by the development of transplantation, because if we were going to use deceased organ donors for transplant, we needed to establish clearly defined ways 
that these were individuals that could not recover, you know, were not going to to be salvageable such that they could then go on to be organ donors. And to be even more specific about that, the whole question of what defines death, you know, so is death when the heart stops or is or do we consider death when the brain has lost function and control? So just to clarify that for people, right? The first thing you said is when the heart stops is what we call cardiopulmonary death. So a person has a heart attack, the heart stops, cardiopulmonary death. A person has cancer, eventually leads to cardiopulmonary death. This brain death thing, how, what is it, how does it show up? Give people examples of the physical way, the physiological ways people get there. It's a kind of confusing concept. How can the body be alive but the brain be dead? And there, there are a whole number of circumstances where that can occur. But essentially, the central component of the definition is that the brain sustains an injury. That could be from anoxia, from an anoxic event. It can be, it can be literally from a traumatic event, you know, a penetrating injury, a devastating head trauma. It can be from an intracranial event, a bleed or such, such that the pressure in the brain and the injury that evolves in the brain increases to a point that blood flow and oxygen delivery to the brain stops. And so all the cellular processes that are occurring kind of from literally the skull base up have stopped. And there are clinical ways to define that diagnosis. So there are characteristic neurologic manifestations of brain death. The classic ones that you see on TV are the blown pupils as someone's brain has swollen to no longer allow blood flow into the skull. There are core bodily functions that the brain drives, such as respiratory drive, that are part of that definition as well, as, as well as a bunch of additional primitive reflexes. And, and really what evolved over time is a clinical definition of brain death that includes multiple elements, including that the individual has to be hemodynamically stable. They can't be hypothermic. They can't be in some metabolic condition that could confuse the issue. But then the central focus of it is this thing called an apnea test, where they literally stop the mechanical breathing support and see whether or not the individual generates the drive to breathe on their own. And so there are clinical brain death exams that physicians are used to doing to document that. And then there are ancillary studies that can actually show that blood flow has stopped into the brain. And I think coming to a consensus on that definition was really critical to allow the establishment of what equates with death so the loss of the function of that individual, even if their other physiologic functions like their heart beating are maintained. And establishing that diagnosis then allowed the step to go from, well, if they are brain dead, but they still have present circulation, can we then move to organ procurement? Because in the absence of that, you could kind of ethically equate organ procurement as as prompting death, right? So in other words, if these individuals are not yet dead, organ procurement is expediting their death, which with their death which violates all the principles of kind of autonomy and the principle of, of organ donation that transplantation is built on. So there's a couple of things there I just want to highlight before you go on, Chris, just so people understand. Brain death still requires cardiopulmonary support. 
that's the very important thing people need to understand. A brain dead individual is not going to be laying in a bed, their brain not functioning, yet somehow they're alive. By definition, if your brain is dead and you are not on full cardiorespiratory support, you will be dead within moments. So that's why this apneic test is done while they're hooked up to a respirator that is just turned off, but not disconnected. They will fail to breathe, as you point out. They will fail the apneic test, and then they'll be resumed on cardiopulmonary support because, of course, the goal is to continue to oxygenate their body perfectly to maintain the appropriate levels of tissue health. The other thing that's worth mentioning, it's so funny, if you watch TV, you might be lulled into thinking that the same set of doctors that are trying to understand if you're brain dead and trying to take care of you after whatever accident you had that led to the situation you're in have anything to do with the doctors that are coming along to take the, the kid in your liver. And because that would seem a little grotesque, right? So explain that sort of line between those two teams of physicians, because you and I have been multiple times on both sides of that. We've been taking care of those patients in the ICU that are going to become donors. And then we've been the, you know, on the other side where you're now part of the team that's harvesting organs. Correct. So it's a clear ethical principle that is central to not only the kind of effective operationalizing of transplant, but also to the establishment of the public trust that is critical to allowing transplantation to exist. And, you know, the way I explain that to transplant families and organ donor families is that the systems are completely separate with an opportunity for integration in between that only occurs when certain events has happened in the individual's care. So, number one, the concept of brain death has to be thought about to begin with, you know, that, that that's part of the diagnostic evaluation of that individual. The brain death exam needs to be confirmed. The family and or patient through previous documentation has identified that individual as an organ donor. And only then after those steps is the transplant machinery or specifically the organ procurement organization involved. So some people have the concern, well, gosh, are the are the people that want more organs for transplant going to somehow interfere in the decisions that are made about this individual who's undergone some tragedy that's leading to the end of their life? And the reality of that is, fortunately, that we have no impact on that decision. I think the other principle that occurs is that then the care of that individual body, because if they've been declared brain death, we consider the individual side, then passes from the caregivers, the healthcare team that's been caring for them, to the organ procurement organization and their team, and then eventually to the transplant teams that do the procurement. So there's a clear transition from when they go from an individual under the care of the ICU team or, or the teams that are caring for them to the individuals whose responsibility it is to facilitate the gift of transplant. And I think in situations that fortunately occur more and more often where either the individual themselves have already identified on their driver's license or through conversations with their family that they, in the event of a tragedy, they want to be an organ donor, or families come forward. And, and I always think this is 
incredibly generous. I mean, this usually occurs out of the worst day of their life, and they come forward to, to say that they would want their loved one to be an organ donor. Nothing happens on the transplant side until all those steps have occurred. And so I think it's really kind of critical to understand that. It is worth alluding to the concept of donation after cardiac death, which is where that gets a little more confusing. So there are individuals who have suffered a life-threatening event, a devastating head trauma, but that has not caused brain death, other medical conditions where the care team and the caregivers have decided that their life is not salvageable, but they're not technically brain death. And that's always been a conundrum because what if those individuals want to donate their organs, but they don't meet this very strict criteria that we've established as an as a important principle to allow organ donation? And what has evolved in the United States and around the world over time is this concept of donation after cardiac death. And importantly, there still needs to be the establishment of death before we can procure organs to, again, separate the process of declaring death from the process of procuring organs. And so what happens in a donation after cardiac death situation is the family chooses to withdraw care, care is withdrawn, the individual then expires over some period of time, and then depending on the circumstances of that individual's death, how quickly it happens, et cetera, if we then believe it's appropriate to still utilize those organs, organ procurement can occur. And those decisions are all made before withdrawal of care. So in other words, the family has decided to proceed with pursuing organ donation. The arrangements have been made to have the teams and individuals available there to procure the organs and preserve the organs appropriately. But nothing happens until that individual is declared dead by a provider that has nothing to do with the transplant team. So I think even in the case of donation after cardiac death, we've kept that very clear delineation between individuals caring for the patient and individuals processing the gift of the donor for transplant. You alluded to something earlier, which reminds me of one of the sadder stories when I was I was in residency actually when this happened. So my mom, one of my mom's closest, closest friends, her son, who was five years younger than me, so I knew we grew up together, was driving home one morning after a night shift and fell asleep, crashed and died, you know, uh, an immediate brain death. His mom, single mom, no relationship to his father, had to make this what can only be described as, as you said, the worst, the worst day of your life. And now you have to make a decision. And you know, I'll never forget she she made this decision to have every every single aspect of her son donated. You know, corneas, skin, his liver was split into two, so two people benefited from his livers, both kidneys, heart, lungs. It's always stuck with me. And if that wasn't enough, a couple of years later I would go on to meet a friend that I ended up working with actually, who lost his son to his he was in a Jeep accident, rollover Jeep, and same thing, you know, he and his wife had to make this awful decision about their 21-year-old son who had just died. And without hesitation, they did the same thing, which was every piece of our son, Aaron, it was his name, is going to be donated to help someone else. And what was especially amazing in the case of 
of this couple. I think I can say their names. I don't, I think they're actually quite vocal about this. Jeff and Tina Webster is that they got to know every one of the recipients. And as I got to know them and got to know the stories, I was just blown away by it. And, and again, I'm someone who's been around this stuff, right? Like it's not like I haven't seen these things before, but the man who got his liver has a tattoo of their son on his arm. You know, it's that kind of stuff. It is hard to believe. I mean, do people ever ask you, Chris, Hey, you know, should I check that box on my driver's license when I'm at the DMV about, do I want to be an organ donor? I mean, how do you talk to people about something like that? Yeah, it's a great question. And it is one that I, that I get asked. And actually my oldest daughter tells me she occasionally gets asked now, I guess, because people know her dad's a transplant surgeon. But so what are the reasons that people hesitate to do that? And I think some of it is what we already alluded to is kind of the concern or the mythology that somehow it'll affect their own health care. And sometimes I'll answer questions about that. But I always try to focus on the profound impact that transplantation can have and try to share with them what I've learned from donor families over the year. I mean, one of the privileges of the position I am in now is that I do get to occasionally do advocacy work and other opportunities to meet donor families. So families like you just told of, the Websters, that have a, a history of a family member who was an organ donor, and many of them can poignantly tell of the process they walked through with that decision-making and the memories of their loved one. But one of the things that donor families really universally share is that their experience of organ donation, whether or not they were able to meet the eventual recipients of their loved one's organs, but that the experience of organ donation and knowing that their loved one's organs live on in another individual and save their life is the only good thing about what was otherwise the worst day of their lives. And I've heard that actual phrasing repeated by multiple families, by multiple individuals who had to say goodbye to their son, daughter, sister, brother, husband, wife, but took some solace in the fact that you were honoring their life by passing on the gift of their organs to another individual. So I think it's important for people to hear that it can be a transformative gift. I think the other thing I share with people and let them make their own decisions is that there is an incredible need for organ donation. There are currently more than 100,000 people waiting on the waiting list for the various organs. And each year there are less than 40% or so of that number done. And the, the need only grows each year. The gap between donation and supply grows each year. Furthermore, the outcomes of the individuals who get transplanted improves each year. So not only do we have this tremendous need for individuals dying of organ failure, but the life that they can look forward to is in most cases incredibly good. You know, restoring them back to life expectancies that approximate normal and qualities of life that in many cases are totally normal. So that's the vision I try to share with people when they're considering organ donation. But acknowledge that it's a very personal decision and people have to be comfortable with that. I do encourage people, if they feel passionately about it, to make the decision themselves. Because I can tell you, like you said, you know, we've been on both sides of this, that 
that walking through that decision-making with someone's loved one who is in the middle of the night in a foreign hospital trying to make the decision about the wishes of their loved one is an impossible task. So the more that you can register yourself and communicate that to your family, the actual easier you make it on your loved ones, God forbid they end up in that situation having to facilitate that gift. Yeah, I think that's the point. You can think of this as an advanced directive, which actually is the biggest service you can give to people around you so that they don't have to, that there's no ambiguity about what your wishes are. We've talked a lot about kidney, but I think I'd be remiss if we didn't spend some time talking about the liver, which is really the bread and butter of, of your clinical practice. And it's certainly one of the most technically demanding operations in the field. It's no surprise then that the most amazing surgical resident I ever got to train alongside is doing the pinnacle of what surgery offers. Let's go back to the 1960s. There's a young guy, it's 1963. There's this guy nobody's ever heard of, Thomas Starzl. He's plugging away at this operation. He actually, I think if I'm not mistaken, was the first guy to figure out that you could add prednisone to Imuran and actually increase survival to levels that were still abysmal by today's standards, but reasonable. You know, I think he was getting 70% survival at one year. But four years later, a three-year-old boy dies on the operating table, bleeds to death. And at that point, people sort of had enough. And there was kind of, as you alluded to earlier, this moratorium on liver transplants until we figure this out more. Let's start with the technical aspect of it. What is it about the liver that is so difficult to surgically implant? I mean, the liver is the largest solid organ in the body. It has some interesting anatomical nuances. It has a dual blood supply. So it's supplied by the hepatic artery, which is a major branch essentially off the aorta, as well as the portal vein, which is the blood drainage of all of the intestinal blood flow. And it, the reason that returns through the liver is the liver is the filter, essentially the metabolic filter for the metabolites absorbed in the GI tract. It then lives on top of the vena cava, the major vein returning blood from the lower part of the body back to the heart, and actually sits right below the diaphragm, right below the right atrium, where it has this complex venous network that drains into the vena cava. So it's anatomically made not to be messed with in some ways is the way you'll hear people talk about it. I mean, and in addition to that, you then have the, all of the intrahepatic anatomy, which can be profoundly complex as well. But the thing that makes liver transplantation really the challenge that it is surgically is not so much the anatomy, which fortunately with experience you learn how to navigate. It's the fact that liver failure at least the diseases for which we most commonly transplant. So the development of cirrhosis or the end stages of chronic liver injury and fibrosis leads not only to synthetic failure of the liver, so the liver loses the ability to process some of those metabolites, it loses its ability to make new proteins, including some of the proteins that help your blood clot and other important functions. But because the liver is become this scarred fibrotic organ, all of that blood flow that's returning from the intestines has to make its way through what used to be this soft compliant sponge and is now literally the consistency of a, of a rock. And so 
what happens is you develop this condition called portal hypertension, where the the pressure in the portal venous system increases such that it tries to find other ways back to the heart. And so it, it forms collateral channels. Those collateral channels are what form the varices or varicosities that are, develop in the GI tract that can lead to life-threatening hemorrhage in liver patients. It's what leads to the formation of ascites or the fluid retention that you see in patients with liver disease with these huge protuberant distended abdomens. And it also makes the surgical field this kind of rat's nest of collateral venous vessels. So so you've got the challenge of a, a large organ with challenging anatomy. You have the challenge of this condition that makes the dissection and the predilection towards bleeding even higher. And then you have the synthetic function, which is occurs in the setting of you're doing this operation in the setting of an individual who's not making normal clotting factors. So it's really both the circumstance of the technical challenge, but more often the circumstances and the in which you're doing it. And as you know, liver failure leads to cachexia and muscle loss. So these are debilitated, sick patients that you're then doing a big operation on in suboptimal conditions. And so the fact that Tom Starzl and his contemporaries took that operation on in the 1960s when electrocautery wasn't really a thing. Most hospitals didn't really have blood banks. We didn't even have critical care anesthesia, at least with any resemblance to what it is now. I mean, it's pretty remarkable that that was even conceptualized, much less achieved technically. And as you alluded to, it was really their realization that not only was the procedure so technically demanding that the risk of early mortality was quite high, but you were doing it in an immunologic setting that just was not successful. And so, you know, even the patients that survived the operation and the early recovery, there were really no survivors past 90 days in the first dozens of transplants done, which is what led to the moratorium on liver transplantation that occurred in the late 60s. And I would add one other thing to punctuate everything you said, Chris, which is not only are these the sickest patients I've ever seen, I mean, these patients are staggeringly sick, but they lack something that every other sick patient has prior to a transplantation. So whether we're talking about cardiac transplantation, pulmonary transplantation, pancreatic transplantation, renal transplantation, all of those organs have some form of extracorporeal support that is offered to them to at least bridge the gap or tune them up a little bit prior to surgery. The liver remains the only major organ with no form of extracorporeal support. Now, I could spend an hour giving you my theories as to why that's the case. I think it speaks, I'll give you the punchline. I think it speaks to one particular function of the liver, although I think there are many, but I think the one that just can't be done by a machine is the regulation of blood glucose. It is so complicated to manage gluconeogenesis, glycogen storage. I mean, you have to be able to regulate something to the milligram level with seconds to spare. There are probably a dozen other reasons, but every attempt at extracorporeal liver support has failed, including some crazy stories that, you know, I heard from, God, one of our, one of the transplant surgeons I remember, it might've been Montgomery even told a story about the baboon. Yeah, that's a Mel Williams story, classic. Oh, that's right, that's right, Mel Williams. Why don't you tell folks that story, actually? It's just the scariest thing. (laughs) So (laughs) 
what you're alluding to is exactly correct. So there have been all kinds of both mechanical and even in atomic models trying to address liver dysfunction or to bridge that gap from liver failure to transplant. And nothing has worked real well. I mean, essentially, we've tried what's been called liver dialysis. So in other words, trying to remove some of the toxins from the bloodstream that the liver is responsible for filtering. We've tried things that do address the portal hypertension. So at least you kind of alleviate that problem, but nothing has replaced the synthetic function that you describe. So one of the obvious conjectures, well, then we need a physiologic solution to this. Could we support patients, particularly patients with acute liver failure, where the injury is acute and the liver is this incredible organ in that it does have this regenerative capacity. Hepatocytes will replenish over time. So the thinking was, well, if someone comes in with a Tylenol overdose or an acute viral toxicity to their liver, could we just bridge them long enough until those new hepatocytes start to come into play? And so it was under that principle that the concept of, well, can we do some sort of extracorporeal model to support these patients? And so Mel Williams, who was the, he was a contemporary and a student of David Hume, who was one of the godfathers of transplant and transplant immunology specifically. Christian Barnard, who did the first heart transplant, actually trained in his lab. And Dr. Williams worked there as well, and then eventually came to Hopkins and started the transplant program at Johns Hopkins. He was a kidney transplant recipient eventually himself, received a living donor kidney from his wife, and unfortunately died recently later in age, not related to his his transplant. A remarkable kind of luminary figure and one of the best storytellers, you know, you've ever heard. But he tells the story of that they decided, well, why don't we address acute liver failure by hooking up the patient to a extracorporeal, essentially, you know, bypass circuit and put a baboon on the other side of the circulation. So the baboon's liver would essentially filter the toxins out. They'd be, the blood would be returned to the individual and that would address their acute liver failure. So they worked on this prep and they did all kinds of preclinical studies and eventually they had somebody come in with acute liver failure. And I don't know the specifics of IRB regulations at that time, but sure enough, they got approval to do this. And one of the things they quickly realized is and I don't know any of the veterinary medicine behind this, but you can't sedate a baboon very easily. You know, it takes Herculean doses of sedatives. And you can't have a baboon running around the medical ICU at Johns Hopkins Hospital. So they decided, and maybe what wasn't the most ingenious method, to put the baboon in a body cast. So they would, at least the baboon would be frozen to the bed. So they do the preparation and unbelievably, it starts to work. So the patient's encephalopathy clears. The patient starts to wake up. So this poor individual wakes up in the ICU at Johns Hopkins. He doesn't know what's happened to him. Looks over, and there's a baboon lying next to him in the bed next to him. So what does he do? He tries to get up and start pulling at lines. So the solution they decided to that is they actually put him in a body cast too. So there was a baboon and this poor individual in a body cast in the ICU next to each other in Johns Hopkins. And that was a short-lived series of experiments, but it did prove the principle that that would work. That if you had an, an actual functional liver, 
in cross-circulation with an individual. And, and actually, he went on to do some preparations between, for example, family members. If a, a family member came in with acute liver failure, you could put them in cross-circulation with a sibling or something. And, and some of those did work and maintain those patients. It also led to the principle that is part of an investigational product now that created this essential a dialysis column populated with hepatocytes, with hepatocyte stem cell line that populates the hepatocytes. And that has been shown, at least in some studies, to at least provide some limited short-term support as well. So, But the principle behind what you said is absolutely right, that we have not figured out how to provide extracorporeal support for liver patients. So they really are the patients that face death if they are not able to be transplanted in a timely fashion. One of the most stark memories I have from residency on the side of patients that would ultimately need a transplant was uh, probably my second year in the old SICU. A young woman came in. She was 21 years old. She'd overdosed on Tylenol. And it's funny when you realize how dangerous Tylenol is and yet how willy-nilly it's available. You know this, of course, but just for folks listening, the LD50, the lethal dose at which 50% of the population would be dead from a drug, that's a, you know that, one would know that for every drug out there. What's the LD50 of fentanyl? What's the LD50? Well, the LD50 of Tylenol might only be 10 to 20 times beyond what you would normally take for your headache. And so the ease with which a person can end their life with Tylenol is staggeringly high. And as was the case in, with this girl, you know, I think she broke up with her boyfriend and took a bottle of Tylenol. And by the time she sort of realized that this was a bad idea, it was too late. And there was the saddest memory I have, Chris, is the following. Before she really went into acute liver failure and then suffered sort of the encephalopathy that would then rob her of her cognition while we waited for a transplant. There was a lucid period of time when her PT, you know, INR, PTT were through the roof, LFTs were through the roof, and it was very clear she was going to die without a liver transplant, and yet she was cognizant enough to know that. And I don't remember how big that window was, but it it existed. Now, we could have been wrong. Maybe she was going to recover, but it turned out she ended up getting transplanted and it was it was just amazing to see her wake up from that and realize like she had another lease on life and and you could say i mean look someone could say well she made a dumb mistake you know and maybe she didn't deserve another chance but of course i would say who among us hasn't done really dumb things it's so true it's it's you know fortunately acute liver failure only accounts for about 5% of the liver transplants done in the united states so it's a relatively uncommon situation in part because the liver is pretty resilient. So sometimes even a catastrophic, you know, overdose with good critical care and other measures, many of those patients will recover. But, you know, we are often faced with the situation where just exactly like you described, a person comes in with a Tylenol overdose. It's an intentional overdose, or at least as, you know, suicidal type gesture. And we have to make the decision with limited information about whether or not we think they're an appropriate transplant candidate. And, you know, occasionally there are reasons why they're not, you know, uncontrolled comorbid disease or maybe, you know, other factors. But usually it's exactly the circumstance you described. It's a young, distressed person who reacted badly to a, you know, a particular event. 
and makes a very impulsive decision. Impulsive decision with a with a freely available drug like out of their medicine cabinet, you know. And I think the approach of our center, which I think is true of most transplant centers, is to give those patients the benefit of the doubt and try and get them to transplant rapidly and then use all the appropriate resources afterwards to help support them and make sure that any mental health issues and such are addressed. So they are tragic and dramatic circumstances. They can be incredibly rewarding, you know, transplants, as you would imagine, though, to see them literally get transformed from the transplant. Chris, when you and I were in medical school and residency for that matter, it seemed abundantly clear that hepatitis C was going to overwhelm the liver transplant infrastructure within the United States. Today, there's good news and there's bad news. The good news is that hepatitis C is not going to overwhelm the liver transplant infrastructure of the United States. The bad news is that something else is going to do that, and that's NAFLD and NASH. Can you tell us the twin stories of these two things and how is it that something that we believed could never be cured got cured? And then how is it that this thing that we didn't know existed 20 years ago is going to be, if it not already is, the leading indication for liver transplant in the developed world? It's such a kind of at once compelling but also humbling story. And I'll, in telling it, I'll add even a third actor that you know is, is part of this as well. So Hepatitis C, as, as you alluded to, you know, a viral illness, bloodborne illness that has kind of an interesting history. Some people that are exposed to, so hepatitis C rarely causes an acute illness, fortunately. Some people that are exposed to it can clear the virus, so spontaneously clear the virus, but the majority are left with chronic viremia and subsequent inflammation which is silent for years and in some cases decades. So the kind of history of this in the United States is that people were exposed to this in the 70s and 80s, either due to a time when the blood supply was not really tested as stringently and they acquired it through blood transfusion or they acquired it from use of IV drugs or other exposures. But then it went about their life and then here they are 20, 30 years later with cirrhosis and eventual complications of cirrhosis and, and indication for transplant. And for about 20 years, that was the predominant indication for transplant in the United States, which was a challenge because the medications we had to treat hepatitis C were not particularly effective, you know, response rates of 15 to 30% or so. So every one of those patients got recurrent hepatitis C after their transplant. And many went on to develop graft failure, you know, and cirrhosis essentially of their transplanted graft. So it was a, it was a particularly frustrating clinical problem because there was this enormous need, but also we were only kind of partially solving the problem. And what has happened and what you're alluding to is in the last 10 years, essentially, was the development of these direct antiviral agents that have transformed the field of hepatitis C. And it's, you know, you can make some arguments about what's the greatest medical advance we've witnessed in our, you know, medical career, but that's up in the top two or three. Yeah, I don't think I could think of something more impressive in my adult life. Maybe you could argue that retroviral regimens that made HIV a chronic disease instead of a, um, could, could rival it. But, but I mean, this is transformative. So you take patients who were on a certain path towards liver failure and death, 
cure their viremia. And what we actually anticipated would happen was that all the patients who already had cirrhosis would eventually go on to need transplant anyway. But what we've seen is a precipitous drop in the number of patients needing transplant for hepatitis C, because once they clear the virus, their liver does recompensate and repair somewhat. And the patients that are not cirrhotic or with advanced fibrosis yet are never going to get there. So it, it, is a, it is truly a curative situation. So that drop has happened precipitously over the last three to five years. It has been replaced nearly completely by actually two diseases, the first and the one that has this incredible broad public health impact is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or the concept of fatty deposition in the liver that leads to chronic inflammation and kind of just like a chronic virus, ongoing inflammation, fibrosis, eventually cirrhosis. And with the obesity epidemic and other associated diseases, the prediction is that by 2030 or so, it will become the leading indication for liver transplantation. And we've already seen that curve start to inflect up pretty highly. The only thing that makes the story a little more interesting or frustrating is there's another curve that over the last several years has inflected even you know at a steeper slope, and that is the incidence of alcohol-related liver disease, which has always been an important cause of liver disease in the United States. But unfortunately, and you know whether you blame it on the economic downturn in the late 2000s or other factors, really have seen an explosion of alcohol-related liver disease, made worse, by the way, by the pandemic. And I think that has occurred at a time when transplant centers have adapted their approach to patients with alcohol-related liver disease to make it a little less of kind of this terrible Spanish Inquisition kind of approach to, you know, you're either in or out, you know, if, if we think you're committed to sobriety, to a system where we have developed resources, mental health professionals, counselors and such to support people in their sobriety to allow them to get transplanted successfully. So I hope that that curve plateaus. We unfortunately don't have an intervention for fatty liver disease that I see breaking that the slope of that curve quickly. And it has changed our field because the population of patients with fatty liver disease is much different than the population with chronic liver disease of other causes, whether it's alcohol, hepatitis C. You know, most of those patients have liver disease and the consequences of liver disease, but usually, fortunately, not much in the way of other morbidity. Whereas you take the fatty liver disease population, they are, first of all, often obese, which you know poses surgical risk and other challenges. But on top of that, they have all the other manifestations of their metabolic syndrome. They have cardiovascular disease, hyperlipidemia, et cetera, which poses you know, medical management challenges, both for making sure we select patients that are likely to be successful with transplant, but also with caring for them afterwards. I mean, the the you'll hear the comment said that we're we've kind of converted our liver transplant population to look a lot more like our kidney transplant population because they're dealing with these cardiovascular comorbidities and other things that are just, that are threatening their long-term survival as much as their liver disease and immunosuppression is. I sort of think that the uptick in alcohol-associated liver disease or AFLD, say, is kind of the parallel but gets less attention than what we're seeing with the opiate crisis. 
So the opiate crisis is, I think it's easy and understandable that you would throw the manufacturers under the bus. And in truth, they deserve to be thrown under the bus. And you can throw the physicians under the bus who prescribe them too freely. And that's fair as well. But the elephant in the room is the why, right? Like, why is it that people are self-medicating with opiates that are made too freely available, et cetera? And I think with opiates, because the outcomes can be quite binary and stark in the nature of the overdose, the nature of the death, it becomes very easy to focus on that. But acute alcohol toxicity is virtually unheard of. Very few people will drink themselves to death in a moment. Much more common, of course, is the chronic toxicity of alcohol. And I think that you're one of the few specialists within medicine as a transplant doc or a hepatologist who actually gets to see what that looks like. But I think it doesn't really register for most people that they're basically two sides of the same coin. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think we unfortunately, that perception that they're different or the fact that we kind of both medically and society-wise treat them differently has prevented us from addressing the problem with the appropriate attention it needs. One of our hepatologists here at the University of Michigan, Jessica Mellinger, who's who's really dedicated her career to understanding alcohol-related liver disease, as she has refined kind of her approach to the evaluation and management of these diseases, she really makes the sense that the emphasizes the point that this is a behavioral disease. You could argue NASH can be a behavioral disease in some cases as well, but therefore the resources have to be put forth to address the behavioral disease. And I think, you know, we have largely turned a blind eye at the impact of alcohol-related liver disease and alcohol use disorder in our society because of the just the factors you said. It's a freely available substance the machinations and just kind of destruction that people have to go through their life to get opiates. That's not the case for alcohol. You can go to the 7-Eleven and get the kind of equivalently damaging dose, you know, there. And I think it's made the problem much harder to address. And I, I am glad to see the transplant community and the medical community kind of re-pivoting in our focus towards trying to help people address the reasons why they're involved in this cycle. Because it is tragic. And one of the things that's most notable about the alcohol-related liver disease population now is they are ridiculously young. So not only have they drank enough to destroy their liver, but they've drank enough to destroy their liver in their 20s and 30s, and you know, which is a little different than kind of the classic 65-year-old guy who's been drinking all his life and you know gets to the end of his life and has cirrhosis and complications. That's right. Most of us think of the Mickey Mantle story where it's exactly what you described, but it is the same disease. And yet one population numbs with an acute numbing agent, opiates that have an acute toxicity. And the other numbs with a chronic numbing agent that has a chronic toxicity. And to somehow put those into different silos, when I think the underlying conditions are similar is, is, is probably slowing our progress. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. Chris, the last thing I want to talk about from a transplant perspective, and there's so much I want to talk about, but I want to be respectful of your time. And I know you've got to head off to a meeting shortly. You talked about the team. One of the things about transplant that attracted you to it was the team. And I think it's probably not obvious to people how big that is. It's obvious to me because I got to see it during residency. 
But I don't think there's a field of medicine that has a bigger team when you encompass, I mean, the only one that I could maybe think of would be like, that would rival it might be pediatric cardiac surgery where you just have such, you know, the, the overlap is huge. But, but even that might not be as big as what we're talking about here in terms of the perfusionists and the surgeons and the anesthesiologists and the nursing and the ICU, and then the logistics associated with organ procurement. It's an enormous team. And you lost a number of team members a while ago, shortly after you got to Michigan. I think that story is obviously tragic, but also highlights the incredible risk that goes into this. Do you mind telling that story a little bit? Yeah, sure. So what you're referring to was a, in June of 2007, we had a team that had flown from Michigan to Wisconsin to retrieve lungs for one of our recipients. They had actually procured the lungs. They had just taken off from Milwaukee and had a tragic set of circumstances that happened to the plane and tried to turn it around and get back to Milwaukee and essentially crashed into Lake Michigan shortly thereafter. And all six individuals on board died. There's a story in there about how important teamwork is in transplantation. You know, so six people lost their life as one small part of trying to get this set of lungs to a recipient, there were two pilots on board who passed away, two of our perfusion staff, so individuals who are responsible for the coordination of kind of the procurement operation, the handling of the organ, its preservation, transport back to the recipient team, and then two surgeons. There was a cardiac surgeon and actually a, a fellow who died in that accident as well. And I can tell you that first and foremost, it's hard to speak about it now without getting emotional. It was the most devastating event that I've ever witnessed professionally, you know, directly. You know, there was a patient on the table, chest open on the table as the lungs were flying back. That operation had to be stopped. One of our coordinators who was the person responsible for you know sorting all these logistics was the person who figured out that the plane had gone down and then had to tell our team what had occurred it was devastating to put it mildly not to mention most importantly the loss that those families sustained you know i think it shook us all in a way that i think is still relevant we still celebrate the lives of those individuals here at michigan every june you know, if there is any good news about that event, it did two things. One of which I think was kind of more immediate and personal, and that is it really made apparent to all of us here, and I think in the broader transplant community, how precious each member of our team is and how important their contributions are and how much they put at stake to make these incredible events of organ transplants happen. The second thing is it made our field pause and figure out, do we need to be doing things differently? You know, do we need to be shipping teams all over the country to procure organs when there are qualified surgeons, you know, right next to where that, that organ may have come from? Do we need to reconsider how we travel, you know, in terms of the expertise of the flight teams and such and the, and the actual the planes themselves? And it has motivated differences, for example, in the liver community now. We used to fly out every time there was an organ to 
to get, you know, we would go to wherever that donor hospital is. Now, more than 50% of the time, you know, one of our colleagues at another center procures that organ for us and ships it to us, which, which is the way that it should be. I mean, I think if you were a layperson looking at the system, you're like, wait a minute, why are you shipping teams all over the stuff when you have qualified people right there? So it has motivated change in our community that, that I think needs to continue to evolve. But you're absolutely right that it, it was a terrible event to remind us of the kind of sanctity and importance of our teams, for sure. Well, Chris, I want to thank you for sharing that story. It's hard to believe it was 13 and a half years ago. I, I mean, I remember like it was yesterday, so I can't imagine how proximate it feels to you as well. This has been wonderful to sit down with you and talk about this. I always enjoy our times together, and I have the fondest memories of sitting in that empty cafeteria at two in the morning between traumas and Again, as long as I was sitting there with you, it was always enjoyable. It was never like, oh, I can't wait to get back to the call room and try to get 10 minutes of sleep. It was like, I'd rather be sitting here with Chris, absorbing his wisdom, even if it means getting no sleep tonight. So that wisdom continues. And I know that you're surrounded by patients that are, I hope they realize how lucky they are to have you as their doc. I'm sure they do. No, you're very generous, Peter. And I just want to say how grateful I am for you inviting me. I also really am grateful for you using your platform to to highlight the importance of organ donation and the the miracle really that it is that transplantation works. And so I'm grateful for the opportunity and most of all just to see you and reminisce a little bit. So thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Drive. If you're interested in diving deeper into any topics we discuss, we've created a membership program that allows us to bring you more in-depth, exclusive content without relying on paid ads. It's our goal to ensure members get back much more than the price of the subscription. Now, to that end, membership benefits include a bunch of things. One, totally kick-ass comprehensive podcast show notes that detail every topic, paper, person, thing we discuss on each episode. The word on the street is nobody's show notes rival these. Monthly AMA episodes or Ask Me Anything episodes, hearing these episodes completely. Access to our private podcast feed that allows you to hear everything without having to listen to spiels like this. The Qualies, which are a super short podcast that we release every Tuesday through Friday, highlighting the best questions, topics, and tactics discussed on previous episodes of The Drive. This is a great way to catch up on previous episodes without having to go back and necessarily listen to everyone. Steep discounts on products that I believe in, but for which I'm not getting paid to endorse and a whole bunch of other benefits that we continue to trickle in as time goes on. If you want to learn more and access these member-only benefits, you can head over to peteratiamd.com forward slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all with the ID peteratiamd. You can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast player you listen on. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content on this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. 
Finally, I take conflicts of interest very seriously. For all of my disclosures and the companies I invest in or advise, please visit peteratiamd.com forward slash about where I keep an up-to-date and active list of such companies. Mm-hmm.